This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? So stop fumbling around in the dark. Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com Okay, back here in Juneau with uh, Representative Will Stapp. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing great, Jeff. How are you? You got a good radio voice. I try, you know. Um, I got to say, you're here kind of in unfortunate circumstances. It's Friday the, is it the 13th or four, what's today's? Oh, it should be Friday the 13th. The 14th, way this 14th. Volcano's but going, we but have this yeah. volcano situation with these Russians and Kam- Kamchatka Peninsula and this ash. And a lot of people were trying to get out yesterday and Thursday. Like there was a bunch of kids from Palmer and many other people who were stuck. And then today... Um, the evening flight m- might get out. It's kind of up in the air. But anyways, you're, you were supposed to go yesterday, but now you're still here. Yeah, you know, um, good old Vladimir Putin thwarting my uh, plans since, uh, you know, 2002, I guess. Well, the, the people in Anchorage just uh, suspended the Sister City relationship with Magadan, which I used to be on the, the commission, the Sister Cities, Sister Cities Commission. I was chair, and I was also the Magadan chair. Um, and... If you go back and read with Eisenhower, why they formed the Sister Cities program, it was to kind of like prevent a war. Yeah, that World was War the, Two, that, right? That was, that was the concept, you know. Um, that was the whole concept between having these types of relationships. That uh, typically, you know, citizen diplomacy. But not, but now we got the maybe the Russians are like, you know, you want to mess with our our sister cities that we're going to blow a volcano off in Kamchatka. Yeah, well, it seems like a slight escalation uh, to a <laughs> severing of a sister city relationship. But uh, I mean, it does speak to the overall concept. I mean, I don't know if I, I don't know the reasoning behind the anchorage. I assume it's. I think it, Fairbanks has, um, is it your Irkutsk? Yes, yeah, I, then, I believe it's. And then Juno has Vladivostok. Yeah, and I don't think our city is going to be severing our sister city relationship. Um, they 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 claim they didn't end it; they uh, suspended it. So oh. that's kind of the way they're getting around it, but. Oh, that's I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan of it. No, I, I think um, you know sometimes you got to take a long term view of these types of things. You know, I think that um, you know interconnectivity and relationships between countries is generally an important thing. I think it helps uh, not escalate conflicts. Mm-hmm. I think historically that's true, but um, uh, you know I'm not going to pass judgment on the Anchorage folks for what they decided. I suppose so. Well, speaking of that, so you came here. Uh, I think '06. You were you were in the army. Yeah. Um, and you were over in if it was Afghanistan or Iraq? No, I went to Iraq twice. Yeah, I first came to Alaska. Well, I, you know, I grew up in the Seattle suburbs. Uh, I was a 9-11 kid. You know, I uh, graduated high school in 06. Um, I graduated in 03, so you're yeah. a, little, a little younger than me. Yeah, I uh, knew I uh, wanted to join the Army, wanted to be in the infantry. And then uh, when I was in high school, uh, saw the HBO documentary Band of Brothers, you know, so I wanted to be a paratrooper. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, what I ended up doing. So I enlisted in the infantry. Got stationed at Fort Wainwright, Alaska, after I graduated um, infantry school. And so you're like 19, school. 20? Yeah, it was a month after my 19th birthday. You know, I enlisted at 18 and turned oh 19 boy. in November or in October, and then got to Fairbanks in November 06. And it was like, uh, had you been to Alaska before? Or? Never. It was 40 below. You know, I grew up in Seattle suburbs, and um, I remember flying into town and 
going in the, the airport back then reminded me of like an abandoned grocery store, you know, before it's all nice now and they redid it. And I was like, uh, got picked up in the TMP van, drove to Fort Wayne ride. And uh, I think we hit every light on airport way green. And I remember asking the sergeant at the time, where'd the town go? And he goes, uh, that's it. You know, were you like, what have I done? Uh, yeah, it was <clears> a shock. <throat> it was a shock. I, I was, it was exciting cause it was a new experience, you know? Uh, but no, it was a shock to be in uh, 30, 40 below weather before, you know, it was a shock to be in a town like Fairbanks that was to me really small and isolated, but it's also really cool at the same time. Um, but yeah, so I, I joined the army cause I wanted to fight in the war. So I had an opportunity to do that. Um, about two months after I got stationed at Fort Wainwright, uh, the airborne brigade in Anchorage, uh, that had just stood up, it's called a 425. They stood up a new battalion through the 509th, um, had just deployed to Iraq back in October of 06. So in January, uh, the, the brigade had taken a bunch of casualties, uh, wounded folks, um, they had came to Fort Wainwright, USERAC did, and they asked for airborne qualified volunteers to go replace the folks who were uh, wounded and killed in Iraq with the Airborne Brigade in Anchorage. So I was one of those, I think it was like 25 of us who volunteered to go do oh, that. So you wouldn't have gone for a while if you wouldn't have volunteered. Yeah, yeah, no, our my, our unit actually, you know, a little bit of Alaska history. So Striker Brigade um, back then was 172nd, went to 125. So 125 ended up being the same unit the uh, Governor Palin's son was uh, stationed in. And oh, tra- track. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so they didn't. He was featured in that ga- game change movie. If you ever yeah. saw that, oh, I didn't. HBO movie. I never saw that one. Yeah. Oh, Julianne Moore and um, Woody Harrelson. Oh, you haven't seen that? No, I got to go it's back a and watch. Fucking it great movie. Any movie with Woody Harrelson is generally. He, he plays um, Steve Schmidt, who was McCain's kind of campaign manager. Oh, you haven't seen this? No. Holy shit! It's uh, based off. I think this Mark Halperin book, but it's called Game Change, and it's Whoa. basically about. But her getting picked to be, you know, VP uh, for McCain and everything that kind of went down. But there's like the scene where he's like, in a, you know, Iraq and he's like, I'm getting on the, you know, I'm getting on the C-130, mom. I got it. You know, it's a whole like scene mm. they have. So you should check that out, man. Oh, it's yeah. I'll check it out. Yeah. So, yeah, I know a lot of guys who were actually. Did you, were you with him? Uh, so it was my old unit, but because I went to Iraq, I ended up transferring to the Airborne Brigade in Anchorage. So I did have an opportunity uh, when I got back from Iraq on that tour. Um to go back to the striker brigade in Fairbanks and deploy again. Uh, but I ended up going to Texas um, and one, three, six infantry and ended up going to Iraq actually the year after that again. So you didn't work with the track Palin guy? No, uh, but I had a lot of friends actually who did, who knew him. Yeah. Do you, re- you, you recall back in 2014, maybe the Palin brawl? I remember that, that was story. Campbell Lake, man. Yeah, well, I was over at your favorite your favorite lake, not in Fairbanks. The, the lake that I, uh, yeah, I still, I think I've been to Campbell Lake one time in the last fifteen <laughs> years, but uh, I'm glad it got so much traction in this legislative cycle. You it's know. just getting, you know, I'm not sure the Senate's going to be uh, as supportive as uh, the House will. We'll see, I guess. But yeah, I, I'm still going to dispute the cost of one sign being. It's 50, actually four 000, signs. Still fifty thousand dollars. Ten thousand. They, they yeah, lower. I it. know we we cut it down to ten thousand. You know. <laughs> For the record, I I did argue that it should be one dollar, you know, but uh, nobody wanted to support me, so I, that's why I voted against it. Well, you got to get the vote. You're one of eleven on the. So so okay. So you were in the military. I want to get yeah. to the legislature in a second, but you were in Alaska. You went to Texas. You came back, and then you met your wife. Now you're married. Yeah, so you have- uh, it actually, so I ended up. Uh, so I was wounded on my first tour to Iraq. I ended up fighting with Third Battalion, Five uh, Ninth Parachute Infantry Regiment. Your Purple Heart. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like uh, my my Revac. My yeah, Re- yeah. My grandpa got. He was in the. Uh, B-17 in World War II, 50 missions, got shot down on number 21, had to bail out of the fucking thing over Yugoslavia, spent, you know, 
almost two weeks getting, you know, evading capture. Um, took a big flus- chest full of flak from a bomb from a um, any aircraft artillery. <clears throat> he got the Purple Heart too, my grandpa. So yeah, that's a way cooler story than mine. I uh, it got off a four day air assault mission. Well, so when I was in Fallujah, Karma, it was pretty intense combat. Were you there during the surge? Yeah, I got there. In, oh uh, shit! Getting a first part of really 07 left in March. I got to my unit in April. That's like peak fight. Yeah, yeah, peak peak war, man. I got peak war, and then uh, I tell folks the first kind of four months of my deployments, uh, all the ended up doing two deployments, but the first four months are really intense, you know, and then they kind of leveled off, and then. It was like a long, long downhill after that. So, uh, but were you always kind of scared of getting like killed or did it like maybe at first? No, I was, uh, so I wasn't ever scared until I actually, actually got wounded. And then as I ended ended up getting wounded, I got uh, blown up by a rocket after a four day air assault uh, mission and like a Humvee or something. No, I uh, I was came off the four day air assault mission at Fob Calcio and had an indirect uh, attack. I hit took a direct hit from a, a long range rocket, blew up our chow hall and happened to be on the basketball court adjacent to the chow hall, and it uh, exploded, kind of flung me across the court and put, took a big chunk of my calf muscle out with a piece of shrapnel. You know. Oh, shit. Yeah, so I ended up uh, getting medevac to the cache in Baghdad because uh, they couldn't stop the bleed on my leg and then um, snuck out of the hospital because I were didn't... You, were wanna... you knocked out or were you conscious? I was conscious, yeah, yeah. It was kind of like I, I didn't even realize what happened. I just kind of knew my leg hurt and then I was like... Um, Kind of went to the bunker there next to the basketball court. I think Revac said something similar. He got pretty wounded, and he didn't really at first realize what like what was going on. Yeah, his I think is a lot worse than mine. Mine's not really that bad because um, it's mainly in my calf, and it splintered and kind of went a little bit into to my leg deeper. But did, the, uh, did they have to like take the muscle out or? Did it- no, so it ended up. Uh, so I, they ended, they took the shrapnel out at the aid station there, and then uh, I had a little nick in my artery, and they couldn't stop the bleeding. So that's why I had to get medevaced. Right. So they just basically medevaced me to this place called the Cash in Baghdad, and then they. Wait, were you able to return to, to service? Yeah, so they wanted to send me to Kuwait or Qatar for observation for like a couple of months, but um, I didn't have any of my stuff with me. And all my friends were back at my unit. So I basically just left the hospital in the middle of the night and I went down to the helicopter pad um, in the green zone. And then I got to the helicopter pad and they're like, hey, where are you going to go? I'm like, mm, I want to go back to Biop. Biop's like the hub, be like the anchorage. Of Do they have pad. to sign you out though? Oh, you think they would, right? That's what I thought. No, nobody said nothing. I was a PFC at the time. And I, I got to the helicopter pad and they're like, where are you what going? Do they call that like in the ER when it's against... Um, Medical, you know, they call that like like AMA against medical advice or something. Checking out against medical advice. Yeah, I just left. I left in the middle. Of you, the did, you did an AMA. You said, yeah, Fuck I, it, I'm out. Yeah, basically, you know. And then I flew back. Uh, I, I got to the helicopter pad, and I'm like, "Hey, I need to go buy up." And the guy's like, "Cool, just chill on the bench." And I'm like, "Really? You're not gonna ask me anything?" Are you wearing like hospital clothes? No, I had my I had my uniform on with my uh, head. It was sog on earth. What's buy up? Uh, buy up is. Um, you know, um, Baghdad International Airport, basically, operations post or something. So where are you going to go from there? So Biop's like the hub. It's like Anchorage, right? So once you get to Anchorage, you can fly basically anywhere in the state. So I knew if I got to Biop, I could get back to Fob Kalsu from Biop. So that's why I told him I was going to go to Biop. So you went back to your base? Yeah, I went back to my unit. And like, uh, it took me a couple couple days to get travel time and um were you like all bandaged up i assume yeah i had my leg had to get packed uh you know twice a day so you had to like stuff it and clean it and then pack the wound you know 
which was actually worse than getting wounded. And you could have just hung out in the hospital and relaxed for yeah, a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, I could have, but I didn't want to do that because, um, you know, all my video games were in my shoe. And so when you got back, video. did you go back to work or did you kind of relax in your room? or what? Yeah, so uh, I hung out for like three weeks uh, on light duty until the, my <clears throat> hole in my leg closed over. And I still couldn't really walk that well, uh, but they let me gun trucks. So I gunned trucks on patrol for a little bit. Until I assume you have like a pretty big scar? Yeah, I mean, it's like, a, I'll show it to you. It's like this, uh, like a like a silver dollar, you know? Oh, so it's not like a big, like long. Yeah, no, it's straight. It looks like a bullet wound, actually, but it's a shrapnel wound. It's like so when it happened, it didn't, you weren't in pain? Well, I was in pain, uh, but it wasn't that like it wasn't as painful as the actual healing process, ironically, right? So no, I I kind of felt like somebody threw a rock at me. Ever been hit by a rock or something, mm-hmm. right? And um, it so initially felt like I got hit by a rock, and then it started burning, like somebody was putting a lighter up against your skin, you know? They catch the fuckers who did it. Oh yeah, they did. Uh, my actually long actually ended up being a long long time buddy of mine later. Certain Stigall's uh, Blackfoot Company Five Hundred First went out and air assaulted, and we hit them with counterfire and. It went right to the house and got all of them, so it was pretty great, you know. So how long after that, did, like, how long were you in the military for total? Oh, I was in, uh, ended up, so I was supposed to get out in 09. I got stop lost, which was real fun, you know. So there's a, there's a movie. Yeah, the, there is a movie, yeah. I was uh, Ryan Phillippe, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think that was maybe the year before I actually got stop lost. I think that came out in 08, and I got, got stop lost in 09. So for the folks who don't know what that means, it means you're supposed to get out, but then they basically say, well, sorry, you have to go back. Yeah, so I ended up not getting out till basically the end of 2010. So I did, uh, I had a three-year contract. I ended up doing closer to five years than I did three years, you know. So when did you meet your now wife? Yeah, I met my wife after my first deployment when I got back to Anchorage. I met my wife at a coffee shop, yeah, probably. In Anchorage? Yeah. So she's not from Fairbanks? No, my wife uh, grew up in Wasilla, yeah, and I met her in Anchorage. But she's Alaska Native, so she has a bunch of family uh, in the interior from Fairbanks. So So when you guys started dating or got married were you like hey we're going to stand in Fairbanks or yeah so yeah we uh so I ended up moving to Texas that's a hard sell with some people yeah well actually my wife loves Fairbanks a lot more than Anchorage right so ended up moving back to Anchorage when I got out of the army I did another deployment to Iraq um in nine and ten uh with the uh, uh, first armor division you know and uh, moved back to Anchorage, worked in Anchorage for a little bit, got an insurance, uh, had an opportunity to take kind of a promotion to move to Fairbanks or stay in Anchorage. And I chose Fairbanks because I love Fairbanks, the people who live there. And, uh, you know, my wife was up for the adventure. So we moved back to Fairbanks at the end of 2011, you know, so I've been there ever since. So I first met you maybe in <clears throat> one of those Republican conventions because you started getting involved in like the party at some point, and I'm trying to think maybe 16 or might have been 12, but I think maybe in 16 we met. Yeah, it could have been. It's probably. I mean, I've been active in Fairbanks uh, kind of Republican politics stuff since I moved back. Because there was a convention in Fairbanks in 16. Yeah, it could have been that one. Could have been before that. But then this last one. So I used to be Republican. I became. I came in 2020. I became independent, nonpartisan now. But mm-hmm. I used to be Republican, but kind of part. And I'll tell you, part of the reason is because of how they treated me. But but more generally just kind of the polarizing nature of politics. But I was at the um, convention and I guess it was 20. Oh yeah. Eight, last year. Eight, or it was 2020, I guess. Oh yeah. Maybe 20, tw- 22. It was last year, wasn't it? Um, yeah. It was, yeah. Cause yeah. it was during the pale. It was during the congressional yeah, campaign. Yeah. And yeah, I tried right. to go into, there was like a keynote deal and I was going to observe it and it wasn't like a secret. There's other media was in there, but 
they had their kind of thugs come escort me yeah. out. Remember, and you were there, and you and you were one of the few people who said, "What the hell are you guys doing?" Like, let them. Who cares? You know, it's some yeah. some congressman or somebody was speaking, but then then you tried to tell them to stop, and then this Ann Brown lady, and then they wouldn't do it. And you're like, "Sorry, man, it's above my pay grade." You're like, <laughs> but then I had somebody, not you, but I had somebody yeah. from the inside just call me and put the phone on speaker, and I just. I heard the whole thing anyways. Yeah. And also, if you stood right by the door, you could hear most of it anyways. And I think they were letting you in in the hall. Yeah. I I think that type of stuff is silly, man. I I think that um, certainly there are certain aspects of what's called central party committee meetings that aren't open to the public. But the whole thing was open to the public. It's Well, there's other instances as well, like when they were trying to replace. So before, ironically, when people think, think like, you know, kind of iron iron hand, they think about Tucker and Babcock. When he was chair, when they were replacing Dunleavy, when he resigned to run for governor. Uh, there was a meeting at, in the Menard Sports Center in the Valley, and it was very open. The whole thing was open, very open process, except when they were interviewing the candidates, which, which I thought was reasonable. Yeah. But then after that, um, when, when Chris Birch passed away, uh, there was that seat vacancy, and then there was a... Revac was appointed. There was a vacancy for... They had these meetings to send the names. There was the uh, Tammy Wilson. Every one of those deals was shut, you know, uh, windows were closed, doors were closed, nobody was allowed in to watch, which I thought was just ridiculous. And what's the big, what are they hiding to have an open process to, you know, send these names to the governor? Yeah, yeah, no, I would I would agree with you, to be honest, too. I, I think that that's always better. And it's like, you know, one of the rules in life, I always tell folks that I always try to buy, abide by is you always try to treat people well, you know, so I'll talk to like media folks here. Some of the media folks here, I, I don't think I've ever agreed with anything they've ever printed and how they printed it, but I still talk to them. Not me. Right? <laughs> no, I think you're just fine, you know, but everyone else, you know, it's, um, you know, everyone is going to filter information through the paradigm in which that they interpret the world. Right. So I think most people uh, don't come at a problem like that from a super malicious way. There's certainly some people who will be really malicious when they write things or they do stories. But I think for the most part, people are just taking the information that they learn. Um, You know, they have implicit bias because of the paradigm and how they see the world and just kind of filtering out through that way. So I try not to take offense to any of those things. And just know at the end of the day, people are people, man. You should always try to treat people well, you know. Yeah, no, you got to treat treat people like you want to be treated. Yeah, exactly. So you you ran this year. You were elected uh, the seat. Steve Thompson didn't run for re-election for it. It was a redistricting, but it was still his seat. So he didn't run. Um, You had been in kind of the party stuff for a while. But why did you decide to, to run for the legislature? Yeah, so folks in Fairbanks have, uh, you know, asked me to do stuff, uh, to run for stuff before, you know, and I happen to live in Steve's, uh, old, well, I guess my district now, you know, um, for... I saw Steve a few weeks ago in the Cap- Capitol, yeah, yeah, was a hockey was, thing. Yeah, with he his, was here with Dude's Matt, like, dude's yeah. like pretty, he's older and he... He's got like a 10-year-old kid, so I'm like, I'm, a man's going strong. He's a boss. Yeah, know? he's... he's I think he had a kid at like 60, you know? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, he's, he's, yeah. he's not messing around. <laughs> yeah, no, I... Uh, so, but I've always been active in, in politics and stuff, and, uh, and really, to me, uh, you know, I people asked me to run before, and I generally said no. Um, actually, folks, uh, you know, even wanted... At one point, I guess two years ago, they wanted me to run in the primary against Steve, and I told them no, I wouldn't do that because I actually like Steve. I thought yeah, I like I like Steve a lot. I got to know him pretty well for fascinating history with his his, uh, his uh, auto part shop. And yeah, being and mayor. I mean, he's just kind of two term mayor of Fairbanks. I think yeah. he was back there in like the 70s, 70s mm-hmm. and he was. Yeah, interesting, interesting story. Yeah, and kind of the main thing, you know, for me is. Uh, 
I, I just kind of feel like, hey, you know, um, I, I feel like Alaska as a state is kind of at a crossroads. Um, I'd, I'd call this like era changing. And if you looked at like a arc of history, you know, between kind of the state that was created out of the oil boom of, um, you know, the 70s and 80s and structurally the things that were play, put in place. And now clearly, and really over the last six years, our state's kind of in a transitionary phase in which we have to kind of, you know, look for the next two decades well, of Alaska's future. So I, mean, I think oil's great and it's done a lot and it's built things and it's allowed for a lot of things to happen that wouldn't have happened otherwise. Mm-hmm. But I've had some conversations recently with some people that have been around before oil and it's, it's uh, you know, there's this idea of the resource curse and economics yeah. and... Uh, many people have said they don't wish, you know, oil wouldn't have been found, but before oil, there was less resources. People were paying. They, they had more of a stake in, you know, the money that was spent. There was less money, obviously, but things like education. And in, in, in some ways, some people have said it was in some ways better than because, because the resources that were there were limited, but they, they were very diligent about, and everybody at that point really wanted to be here. It wasn't like, you know, with oil, people started moving here, different reasons. But back then, if you were here, you really wanted to be here. Yeah, so I would kind of go further than that. I think Alaska as a state is diametrically different uh, today than it was uh, when the pipeline happened. And the main reason, uh, so my main kind of justification for that argument is going to be Alaska is a very migratory state. And uh, so you have huge turnover in people, influx and out-migration. And, uh, and I, and you and I are actually an example of that. Like, I'm not from here. I don't think you're from here. I'm up here a couple of years before you, I'm up here in 04 when I was yeah. 19. So, yeah. So, you know, structurally we're a, a state that's basically a migratory capture state. And a lot of the, a lot of the longtime folks who kind of grew up here generationally, a lot of their kids and grandkids are actually not rise, residing in the state. So we're, well, we see now the, the pretty, pretty known, the, the um, demographic issue with people leaving, you yeah. know, for the last 10 years, working age people too, yeah, which exactly. is the big, bigger problem. Yeah, I know. Uh, it, is <laughs> a, it is a huge problem because uh, you have to kind of determine, okay, so if you, if you look at Alaska through the lens of a, a state where a ton of military people come here, a ton of people who in the oil industry come here, a, a ton of people come here for adventure, like what type of policies uh, do you want to craft to be able to capture those people so that they actually put roots well, here and, and they develop the economy and things like that. You know, so. when they discovered oil, that was kind of the selling point of becoming a state. And Hawaii was also at that point trying to become a state. And Hawaii back then was the Republican state and Alaska back then was a Democratic state. Yeah. And and we've seen that flip. And, and obviously it was oil, I think, that really led to the, you know, big influx of people from Texas and Oklahoma and um, different different people that moved up here for, for the money. But um, it was a pretty big shift. I mean, you had like Bartlett and Egan mm-hmm. and I mean Gravel. I mean these were like major de- like progressive Democrats. Yeah, <clears throat> I think I think uh, LBJ mm-hmm. won. Kennedy Kennedy was up here in the sixties. He was yeah. I um, think uh, was, in, uh, Anchorage. Yeah, I want to say LBJ was the last Democrat to actually win a presidential election for the state. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. So now, that, now we have all this money, which is yep. great. But like, and I was going to ask you. You know, you're one of the folks. You're Republican, but you, you're not one of these. You didn't run on the dividend. I mean, I think you've no, talked yeah. about it, but you're not one of these like fucking full dividend or, you know, and then even 50-50 now is, I think, the ultimate compromise some are willing to make. But you've been, um, you've actually said, I think, uh, you don't want to see a big overdraw to, to pay or a CBR or, or yeah, savings yeah. draw to pay a dividend, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I think that, um, 
So I'm a, I, I look at myself, I'm a standard kind of fiscal conservative. You know, I've been that way my whole life. Um, so I tell folks, I think the dividend is an excellent program. I think to me, the biggest issue, and it's not just with the legislature in general or with the dividend statute in general, it's a lot of structural statutes that our, our state has uh, that most voters that I know, what they want is um, their elected officials to kind of make reform to keep their government accountable to the people. So that means like following the law or changing the law. So my argument with the dividend is I, I don't think um, at the current level of services the state provides, and even if you've got it a lot of those services, I don't see how unless you impose substantial broad-based taxes on people uh, that you can structurally maintain uh, the historic statutory formula payouts in the PFD. Which which uh, is interestingly enough from like Ben Carpenter, Representative Carpenter has a, has a sales tax bill. There's been talk of oil taxes, there's been even talk of income, maybe not as much, but there's now more and more talk. And it's interesting if you watch like the Ways and Means, you hear some Republicans now basically saying, well, to do the full dividend, now, they, they're, now they're in charge. They haven't been for six years. we got to get some revenues here. Yeah, well, and effectively, they're not wrong. If you want to maintain the level of state services that the state currently offers and you want to pay a statutory dividend, you need to plug about a billion-plus dollar hole in the, uh, in the budget, and that's at a good oil price, right? Um, if you get to a historic average oil price, let's say it's in the 50s or the 60s, it's closer to a $2 billion deficit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, my argument is, uh, you know, there's no tax combination uh, that's ever going to be made in, in a broad-based level in the state of Alaska that's going to net you above $2 billion. Um, and, and uh, you know, I said this before, I'll, I'll get a little spicier. I, I don't think you should tax people for a dividend whether it's a sales tax or an income tax. Well, that's a very common position that, I mean, most, I'd say, maybe maybe probably the majority of Republicans in the legislature hold. I mean, definitely the many Republicans and, you know, the Chamber of Commerce ones kind of, you have different, you know, folks that that have a different opinion about that. But um, I guess I was going to ask you, your first time, first term, you're in the majority. But for the last six years, Republicans have been in the minority in the House. And then, you know, Governor Walker vetoed in 2016 the dividend uh, because there was at that point a big deficit, billions mm-hmm. of dollars. He was really attacked by Republicans, um, and in fact, many people who were mad about that. But it's just going forward now. It, it's just kind of ironic to me that a lot of the people that were very vocal against what he did are now proposing what he was doing, what he did, and what he what he, what he was mm-hmm. proposing to do. You know what I'm saying? It, I know it's politics, but it's. I guess the dynamic of being um, in the majority versus, the, and you were never in the minority, but yeah, yeah, some of the no, folks. I, uh, so what I watched all this happen, of course, because they played close attention. So I would say certainly uh, some of that uh, from some folks, you could probably make that argument. Um, I would kind of say um, a lot of it's, a lot of it's just dynamics and uh, kind of focusing on what we need to be. Um, so of course, you know, Governor Walker, um, basically got elected, and then I want to say oil basically crashed, right, his first He was time. elected when it was about 70, so it was it was not super low, but then by December or by January, it was down in, like, the like low 30s. Yeah, yeah. And so at that, that point, it was, that deficit was, like, $3 billion. Yeah, that's what I mean. So basically, by the time he was sworn in, you know, it was already already crashed. It was, so. ba- it was bad, yeah. I mean, right yeah, now, so. it'd be, like, right now, we're at a $500 million maybe deficit, but, I mean, imagine if that was six times higher. Yeah. Uh, but I think there are a lot of strange uh, political dynamics happening then. I mean, that was, um, you know, you had you had the, you know, just uh, like I, I think prior to um, really 2016, the, the thought of a large chunk of House Republicans kind of 
peeling off and forming a, um, a governing body, at least in the House with Democrats. Uh, I don't think that had happened for a long time. The Senate had done similar types. Yeah, the of, House had been Republican for a long time. Yeah. And back in, it used to be, you know, back in the 90s, there was a Demo- Democratic House or Bush, with Bush caucus. But yeah. It had been Republican. I mean, I mean, Chenault was speaker for eight years. Um, you know, Brian Porter, John Harris. It goes back a, yeah. a long ways. Republicans. So I think there were just a lot of shocks to the system structurally um, and just Republican nature in general. Like uh, the thing that I always tell folks in Republican politics is Alaskan. Well, Republican Party folks in Alaska never really had to work to win races before. Right. Um, never really had to work super hard. Not saying that people don't work hard. They do all the time. But I mean, for uh, for a Senate race or for congressional races and stuff like that. Well, when I ran in 20, I ran for Senate in 2012 as a Republican. And yeah. I was kind of the against the coalition back then. Mm-hmm. And um, what I've noticed over the years observed is back then, like Randy Redrick was chair. Mm-hmm. Party was very involved. Yeah. There was recruiting efforts. There was fundraising efforts. There was big support of Democrats, too. And, and those both parties have really kind of waned and yeah. become I mean, they're still there. But I mean, did you do much? I imagine you probably didn't do much for the party. You just no, did your campaign, and yeah, like most no, people do. Yeah, I ran my own campaign with my own folks and raised my own money, you know. And, and now we have unlimited donations, which makes it even um, worse for the parties because if, if you're somebody, whether it's governor, legislator, you know, you've, instead of five hundred, maybe you get five thousand or ten thousand from somebody. It makes raising the money. What do yeah. you think about that? By the way, I mean, they tried to last session end that, lower the the. Um, let the let limits, but they didn't do it. So, yeah, I mean, so there's two issues uh, to me. Um, individual contribution limits are caps are certainly um, something that I would be in favor of. Um, uh, the issue is you'd have to find some way to kind of figure out what to do about uh, political action committees as well, you know, mm-hmm. in order to kind of balance it. And even, even, uh, you know, uh, IE type stuff, you know, you'd have to, well, I mean, those, yeah, those, that goes back to that citizens United. Yeah. So the floodgates have been open there for, yeah, correct. And I actually, I worked on, I ran an IE once for, um, Mel Gillis or for actually Mel Gillis funded it back when, when it was Josh Revac in 2018. But you know, what, what I kind of noticed then was there's really not that big of a difference because if you have, you know, somebody giving the IE a bunch of money, for the for the voters or for the people getting the they really can't tell what's yeah, coming exactly but but the one difference is you know giving the the will stat pack fifty grand is one thing and I'm sure you're going to see that but giving will stat fifty grand yeah is so that, that that's where I see the yeah pr- this pretty big is, difference uh, well this is kind of to my overall point um, I don't know maybe I'm cynical right but if somebody writes you a hundred thousand dollar check they don't they don't do so because they love you and don't expect anything. It's not altruist. It's <laughs> yeah, you know they're they I mean? UNICEF here. And I think, uh, I mean, and, uh, you know, I just think that, uh, and I think every candidate at that level, um, statewide level for office, um, and you, you can correct me here, got at least like a $50,000 check. Some people got multiple $100,000 checks. I mean, Dun- Dunleavy yeah. got some big ones. Walker got some, yeah. and Walker got yeah. several people, $100,000. Yeah. And I think even Gara had a $50,000. And then you had like legislative, some, um, these people from, um, was it Arnold from Texas? These billionaires. Yeah, yeah, the Arnold. They gave, I yeah. think like two, Kathy Geisel. $100,000 um, checks or something. You know, yeah. I think Bert Stepp, some of these legislative, were getting five and $10,000 from, I mean, these Arnold people gave, I mean, pfft, well over two, three hundred, I mean, two or three hundred thousand dollars in to- total donations to, and yeah. I think they were, 
involved in that ranked choice deal a bit. So well, and that's the argument, right? The argument is okay. Well, you have if you have a couple in Texas. So let's just use an example. If you have a couple in Texas and they're giving huge individual donations, not just to you know, gubernatorial candidates, but to Senate candidates and House candidates, it's like you you can kind of assume that that is for a specific purpose and reason, you know. And um, you know, again, I don't, I don't think anyone cuts somebody a hundred thousand dollar check and doesn't expect anything in return personally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my, my belief is like 500 is too low unlimited <clears throat> crazy. So there has to be a way to yeah, also yeah, with inflate inflation. Yeah, there should be it. some sort of, um, I mean, I would think it's just be fine if you capped it at the federal limit, you know, which I think is like 5,500 per person or something like I that. I think it's like about 2,900. So it's okay. per, per couple, like, well, 50, whatever, 5,700 yeah, yeah. per. Yeah. And like I said, I wouldn't have any issue with just doing that. Um, so there is a good argument that, um, you know, your statewide candidates in theory need to raise more money because they're hitting the same media market statewide, mm-hmm. right? So the governor should effectively have the same fundraising ability as in Alaska as a congressman or a, or a senator, right? Because they're all competing in the same media Well, before market. when it was 500, I mean, that was really challenging. Yeah. You had to really hustle a lot of people. But now it's unlimited. I mean, we saw all these gubernatorial campaigns get some pretty large donations. Something else I want to ask you about was last week we had the kind of blow up in the house when the Democrats fled. And oh, yeah. Made, made that was a, fun. Made for a great headline. But like earlier I asked you about Walker and what he did. Um, it's kind of interesting that Democrat, when they were they were very angry about the, the education, $175 million being tied to the CBR, which is a larger vote threshold, which is important if there's a deficit to get money out of the savings account. But... It's interesting that many of them had um, advocated to take half of the dividend from the CBR. Yeah, actually, it was seven times the amount of money out of the CBR. Yeah, so it was it was eight hundred fifty million versus yeah, exactly one hundred seventy five, um, and that was ostensibly, I guess, to for, force a fiscal plan. And they were most of them, I think, were for that. Ortiz had an amendment that ultimately failed. Well, yeah, the word, there are three separate attempts, including Ortez's, to kind of uh, mess with the dividends for the, the, CBR funds. So half of that yeah. would come from the... So that was like something they, you know, wanted because that would have forced conversation about revenues and things and draining the CBR. But then when they came, when, when the majority maneuvered to, for whatever reason, still trying to kind of get my head wrapped around that, but they maneuvered to change... They had the $175 million from the general fund. They changed it to where it ultimately came... It's tied to the CBR now and the House version. They were very angry, so angry they, they walked out, 14 of them. I guess what's your thoughts on, on you know, that kind of, I used to put the Walker kind of hypocrisy of folks who um, were mad at him, but now, but now there's also kind of a hypocrisy on this issue. Oh, you know, it's just a bunch of kabuki theater, man. That's kind of my personal opinion. Um, look, I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's, Okay, so it's like, what are you, what are you valuing uh, ideologically, right? So we were debating basically the amount of the dividend versus one-time funding of education funding, right? So one-time increase in education funding and a, a PFD amount for this year. So both of the, both of them are in theory like one-time numbers, right? So to me, you know, it, it is really apples to apples. It just depends on a value judgment. So certain people are going to value higher education funding over dividend, and certain people are going to value a higher dividend over education funding, right? Um, but most of the arguments that were made, uh, you know, in my opinion, are just, you know, they're hypocrisy, but it's politics, you know. Well, I think, I think at this point, time. one argument I had Ashley Carrick on the podcast, and she's, she's made something, say a pretty good point, that um, the, the theater or whatever that happened, but but um, and the next day it was a little more cordial. The, mm-hmm. When they came back, it got pretty nasty for a while and personal. But, but um, now there's no 
ambiguity. I mean, it's very clear what those folks want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I, I would have said so from the get-go. I mean, uh, to me, you know, you can kind of see these dynamics kind of shaping up down here where it's going to be – and really overarching point is um, – Overall, our operating budget has been relatively flat since 2015, right? I mm -hmm. mean, as an overall number, if you subtract the amount for the dividend. Each I'm year, glad you right? said that because, I mean, I follow this stuff pretty close. And yep. so much of you hear from people, it's like, the budget's out of control. It's, you know, I mean, it was really big. It was like $6 billion at one point, the yep. operating budget. And it's been lowered. Um, and it's kind of been pretty pretty flat. Yeah, so d that doesn't mean you can't um, do cuts. Um, I think you could probably carve out another two or 300 million out of the operating budget in state GF uh, without a total collapse in federal matching funds. But you'd put a lot more downward pressure on services that are already being pressured heavily. Well, and and you're, right? you're chair of the health subcommittee, yeah. which is the biggest, you know, well, now it's split into two, but still a huge budget. Yeah. Um, those health and family services. Yeah. It's a combined, well, health department is combined federal and state of uh, 3 billion, right? So it's the largest, um, I think I, if you had both of them, I had the largest budgets in the operating budget together, yeah. And uh, most of the department heads there were new. Most of the deputies were new-ish, and he had a lot of so, um, challenges. So yeah. I saw this House still has the basically has subcommittee, but the Senate has split them into two sub. So is that the plan at some point? To yeah, I think inevitably we should split them into two. So there are good reasons of keeping them together structurally at the moment, and mainly because um, – both departments still are heavily interdependent on what's called interagency receipt authority, mainly because they get the bulk of their fundings through Medicaid still. So mm -hmm. it gets a little weird. So for example, um, if I were to do health and someone and what else to do family and community services, um, it would hard, it would be very difficult to understand each department individually without understanding Medicaid services in the health department. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I guess kind of last thing I want to ask you, it's, it's, we're coming up on day 90, um, your buddy, Representative Eastman, uh, had a motion to adjourn until January 16th, 2024, which, I mean, frankly, I don't uh, necessarily think is the worst motion because the statute does say 90 days. Now, the Constitution obviously says 120 or 121, and you can't adjourn for more than three days without the other body adjourning. So it's kind of a bit of a theater, but we are getting on day 90. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's the 121 limit for the Constitution. The House still hasn't passed the operating budget that they have. it. They're done with it. Um, there's been a lot of conversations about the Senate, what they're doing and the capital budget, I guess you're not in the leadership, but I mean, you're on the finance committee and you're in the majority. What, what do you see happening here in the next week, uh, with the budget? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think we're going to be passing the budget out. I know we have the, we have the capital budget notice in house finance. So we're going to so start which, looking at that next for, week. For the folks listening, so some understand this, but others maybe not. Mm -hmm. The house passes the operating budget traditionally first Senate passes the capital budget. They go back, but the Senate still hasn't done the capital budget. You guys are holding the operating budget. Now the house has their own capital budget hearings next week at the finance committee, which is unusual. And maybe it's a reverse traducan. You never know. Uh, it, you know, it could <laughs> be. It could, you guys could be, I mean, there's no telling what could happen. Yeah, no, I honestly don't know. Uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. I'm not privy to the conversations, uh, but you know, there's certainly strategy and communication involved. I do know that, um, you know, we have both the House and the Senate. Um, you know, we have representatives and senators, and I think that I probably could speak for every member of the House and probably every member from the Senate that every elected, all 60 of us would probably like to see what both budgets are, you know, without one side writing it for the other and kind of letting you know, for in the last day to vote for it or not. So I'm sure for a lot of the folks listening, they understand, but in the past, you know, re 
several years, they've done this turducken thing where the Senate will jam in the capital budget and the supplemental budget into the operating budget and send it back, which effectively gives the House no say in the capital or supplemental budget because when the bill comes back, it's an up or down vote. Yeah, and I, I mean, just so to put that in context of like a normal person understanding, like so maybe there's a project in your district, like I have a couple of projects in my district that I would like to at least have the opportunity to advocate for, you know. Capital projects. Yeah, capital projects, absolutely. Things that we need and Fairbanks Polaris building is pretty well known. And, you know, to not be able to even get a say in, you know, that budget would make me very unhappy personally, you know. The other thing for somebody like you, young, young guy, two kids, business, um, I think about Representative Ruffridge, same deal, yeah. Representative Sumner, mm-hmm. um, many other people are, you know, younger in the legislature. There's been a little bit more talk now of if this can't get worked out, special session, which I'm not saying that's going to happen, but there's been some more conversation about that. Um but I think to a lot of folks, that's just not acceptable with, you know, their families and their jobs in the summer. Yeah, no, it would, uh, and, you know, for me and Sumner and, and Ruffer, I mean, it would be, I mean, for me, it'd be very devastating on my own personal income, you know, and I'm sure it would be for Sumner and other folks too. Rob Myers, right? Senator, yeah. truck driver. He, needs yeah. to, he drives all summer. And uh, yeah, so that's the thing. Like, I, I, I believe in a citizen legislature, right? And I want to keep my professional job. I've done it for 12 years, you know. You, um, you, you, you couldn't insure me on my bowling deal. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's PNC, you know. I, I do health and life, you know. I do people insurance. I could insure I did you a, if you hurt yourself bowling. You know? I did a political report uh, event a few weeks ago for bowling, and I was trying to get some buddy, some company to insure me for a perfect. I wanted to pay out 20 grand for a perfect game, kind of like the hole in one, you know, if you're do golf and you go to these tournaments, they have the hole in one for a car. Well, those organizations don't put the money up for the car. They buy insurance from uh, these companies who do the hole in one insurance. I couldn't find anybody to insure me on the perfect game. Mm. I, I thought maybe you'd be my guy. But. Yeah, no, yeah, so that's, uh, that's going to be, actually, I don't even know what line of business that would be. It's certainly not health and life. Right. So put it that way. I think it's one of these it's, it's like going to be on the, on the niche commercial risk inside, but I don't know. Yeah, I couldn't tell you the line. You should call up uh, Commissioner Hire. She'll be able to tell you probably. Lawyer Wing Hire. Maybe yeah. she could help me out. Mm-hmm. So uh, today, after floor, you were, during floor, you were on a break, and you mentioned, I never heard this before, but my God, it's so true. You kind of look like Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> yeah, I got him my whole life. Yeah, yeah. I've never, I never even thought about it, but then when I heard that, I said, oh, my God. It's like, you look... Just like fucking Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> we got to get a picture of you to Jimmy Fallon. Oh, I know, right? Served me well in junior high, you know. Tweet it so. out to Jimmy and say, hey, this guy in Alaska, House of Representatives, is kind of your doppelganger. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe you can go on the I, show. I'm the funnier, younger version. That's what I say, you know. I used to, when I was growing up, I used to love, we're from a similar age, I used to love Jay Leno until he screwed Conan, but that's a whole other story. Um, yeah. You know, I just, I mean, I watch it sometimes, but it seems like that whole institution, you know, that Tonight Show is... Not what it was when I, maybe we're all like that when you get older, things are nostalgic. No, I just think that um, they're not funny really anymore. They're too political. They basically tried to infuse the Daily Show, which John Stewart did really well inserting humor mm-hmm. in politics. And now it's just outrage culture. And I'm not really interested in any of that type of stuff. Like There's Jimmy Kimmel. That's a different level too. He's, yeah. Ooh. Yeah, no, and it's just not funny, man. And late night TV is supposed to be funny. Normal people don't want every everything interjected in politics. I remember Leno and Letterman. Yeah. You know, those were, and then obviously I wasn't really, I was too young, but um, yeah. there, there was, you watch, go back and watch Johnny Carson stuff. That was, that was great. Yeah, and I think, like, to me, you know, normal people, I, I, I don't understand what the crusade is through activists and media folks to interject every cultural issue in every little act of daily life ever. 
it's really well and there's so much and, and, and I'm, I'm i hate to it's just so repeated and i think yeah. it can become kind of overused but the kind of like the you know the liberal media mm-hmm. but like i just watched um the oscars there you know it was the what was the show where one of these deals it was the oscars where, where jill biden came out you know president Joe Biden, mm-hmm. and i'm thinking to myself and they're Why? cheering melania they would never let melania trump no, do this like yeah. you know so it's it's like that frustrates me sometimes when yeah. I think there is well, there is, is something there to this kind of um, that the media right or, or yeah, Hollywood. No, it's, it's agenda. It's a kind of agenda driven driven uh, sensationalism, right? I think it's bad for the country to do that. I think it's bad for people relationships, and I think it encourages complete polarization. You know, I mean, Fallon had one point years ago Trump on his show, and yeah, if people freaked out. Oh, I know. It was, yeah, it was yeah. like the he world's was, getting he was too nice to him or something. Yeah, he was being too. You know, he was treating him like a. Person, you know, he was yeah. talking to him. Like, yeah, no, it's really sad, and uh, you know, and they're going to be people are going to listen to this and get angry probably because they even mentioned it. But I would just say, you know, look at a mirror. You know? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. That's why one of the things I like about you, kind of just, you look kind of like me. You just somebody asks you something, you tell them. Yeah, basically, you know, not, not, not enough of that around yeah. anymore. People are so nervous to just sometimes say something like, and that's my issue with what's going on. It's really hard to live in a free society when people are afraid to talk. Oh yeah, no, I agree completely. And uh, the thing that I tell folks, even when I was campaigning for voters, you know, I'm going to be the same tomorrow as it was yesterday. Uh, and you know what? The beauty about living in a representative uh, republic, right, is in the event that the people that I represent don't like what I do or how I articulate, um, they're not going to send me back when I run for Leela. Are, are you on the term limits thing from the freshman? Are you on that or no? I don't think so. I have no problem with term limits, right? Your, your freshman caucus folks did a, a bunch of them did a did a constitutional amendment for term limits or yeah month. i think i mean term limits are fine i would say my argument would be you know the only the only aspect of term limits that you'd have to consider is are you developing enough institutional knowledge over the course of the term limit to not just have your whole government run through the shadow government right? well you empower staffers and lobbyists right? exactly, and people right. that you know can can stay and uh, that's that's the thing about the competency thing right i mean um you know, if you're pretty confident, you're diligent, you can learn how the systems are. And But, you know, people who are ingrained in the building and 20 years of staffing or lobbying, I mean, you don't want them effectively running the government, well, know, I, the I shadow used, government. I, you know? I've said this before. I used to, when I first ran in 2012 and I had no experience down here, I used to think, like, fucking throw them all out, get yeah. new people. And this is my fifth year down here now. And, and I've come to, you know, very quickly come to realize it's like it's pretty hard to figure this place out. It takes a while to get a, a, a real grasp of it. Um, at least a couple of years. And then once you do, you know, that, that's when you can maybe start to, and, and also just being new, you don't want to be kind of, you don't want to come in there like, cause there's been people that have been around for a long time and you have to kind of get your seniority. But there are people like lobbyists and staffers that have been here for five, 10, yeah. 20 years. And, and they really know how things, and if there's all these new, le- like right now we have a lot of new legislators. Yeah. You're one of them, you know, yeah. 17 in the house. So, um, it, it makes things, you got to go? Yeah, look at the phone, so. No, no, no. I, I got a couple more minutes. I'm just, my chief of staff's texting me and asking me if he can let my uh, one of my staffers go home 10 minutes early. Bernard, like, I like yeah. that guy. Yeah, Bernard's great, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, to the point you were making, I mean, you had asked me a while back about why I didn't make any structural, deep structural changes to the health department's budget, right? Because, yeah, because yeah, you were the chair of the subcommittee. Yeah, I was the chair of the subcommittee. So my argument to that is... Um, so typically, you know, I'm very well aware that I am new. So I, I certainly identified a lot of things that I will probably look at changing down the road. But whenever you inherit something new, 
uh, that's very complicated. There's a lot of moving pieces that if you are kind of a responsible person who like understands the risk mitigation, you don't want to, um, you know, burn the place down, for example. So the analogy is. So you guys had those pins, remember last week with the, yeah, yeah. this is, this is fine. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the little fire building, right? Yeah. The burning. So, burning you room. know, yeah. The analogy is, you know, this isn't a house of cards. This is your life and mine. And, um, you know, as long as I'm here, so far as I'm concerned, you know, no one's going to come in and knock it down, you know, um, because when you're dealing with stuff like health and Medicaid and old people and sick people and young people and, you know, um, just understand that decisions that you make affect a lot of people, mm. you know, and you don't want to hurt people. Well, I think we saw in 2019 how crazy things got when the governor proposed some pretty hefty cuts and yeah. kind of got things went off the rail. You know, that was a pretty crazy that was wild. I was here in July. Yeah, and even even Juno. even the uh, even the precipice of that uh, had structural change. Uh, so for for like the University of Alaska Fairbanks, that they haven't effectively recovered from even the even mm-hmm. the threat of that. You know. So um, last thing I promise. Now, if we ever have the Chinese take over and we have the Chinese overlords, uh, one of your daughters or maybe both, uh, they're in the Chinese program because I heard them. They were in the hall. She was oh, yeah. counting in Chinese. So. So if it ever goes down, at least you're going to be able to communicate with these. It's called hedging, man. You understand? <laughs> like, is there a mer- Chinese immersion in Fairbanks? Yeah. Or? Well, yeah. So I uh, we have great uh, grad students come over here, and I help, and they have to teach my daughter through immersion uh, Chinese, right, Mandarin. So my argument is like I'm all in it for the USA, man. But in case we get beaten, you plan, know, pl- plan, yeah, B, plan B, plan you know? B, you know, I'll be a collaborator. You know, what she I mean? was counting in <laughs> Mandarin. I was like, oh my, how old is she? Pretty young. Yeah, she just turned five. Yeah, she can count and talk a lot in Mandarin. You know, yeah, that's so. that's great. No, I think. Language is really important. It's great yeah. when kids can engage, you know. Get, yeah. Get don't, don't forget to hedge, especially with your kids, you know. That's right. right. So, Okay. Well, Representative Will Stapp, uh, Jimmy Fallon lookalike. Really, yeah. really happy you could <laughs> come in here. And um, I guess we'll be seeing how things go in that finance committee next week. It should, yeah, should be interesting. Should it should be, be fun. It should be fun. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks again for coming on, folks. If you have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, get a hold of me and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.